Well, good morning, South Shore. We have a very exciting day today. A lot is happening uh, this morning, all to the glory of God, and, and God is doing such great things in our church. So we have two baptisms coming up, and uh, we look forward to that, and we're going to do most of our service outside, but I'm going to preach uh, from here this morning, then we're all going to go outside and worship together with those who will receive the preaching of the Word uh, after our service outside. So the premise of our sermon series that we're in right now, the glory of the gospel, is that we simply need to enlarge our vision of the gospel. Uh, it's my contention that, that as Canadian Christians, sometimes our gospel can be too small. It's not that the gospel actually is too small, but our view of the gospel can be too small. And so we've looked at the new covenant and just the glory of the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. We've looked at the new heart, that God has actually given us a new nature that is holy. And today we're going to look at the promise of the gospel that we are going to have a new body for a new world. In uh, now it's an 80-year-old sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That was written 80 years ago. I think it still fits. And the premise this morning is that we need to enlarge our view of the gospel. We are far too easily pleased. We need to stop making mud pies because there's a holiday at the sea that has been promised to us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you that you have given us your scriptures uh, to show us what you have given to us through Jesus Christ. And my prayer for this church would be that we would have a big, expansive view of this gospel, that we would see all that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and by his resurrection and the promise of his coming. Lord, today as we prepare to celebrate two baptisms, we want to have a big view of what we are marking by baptism. I pray that you would help me to preach this. I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, that we would be able to, to, to taste just a, a little bit more the sweetness of the inheritance that is ours saved for us in the confident and strong hands of Jesus Christ. I pray these things trusting entirely in your grace and in your strength to proclaim it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. What do I mean when I say that we must enlarge our view of the gospel? Well, I mean a lot of things. This morning what I mean is that if your gospel stops at personal salvation, then your gospel is too small. And I believe that we focus so much on what the gospel has done for us individually, personally, or if we want to expand it, for us as a human race, that we forget that the gospel has promised to rescue the universe from corruption. Uh, that the gospel includes the redemption and the resurrection of the universe. 
What we've done with our popular theology of heaven is that we've shallowed out this promise of future glory for the created world. And the problem with this popular, I would say, boring view of heaven is that it ignores the fact that the gospel includes the promise that God will lift the curse from the, from the universe, and in lifting the curse, He will resurrect the nature that He has created in glory. Heaven has become for us, and our view of heaven has become an escape from the physical universe. When we think about heaven, uh, we think that, well, if we could just get through this life, if we could escape these bodies, if we could escape this world, and if we could go and float up there somewhere in the clouds or beyond, then everything will be good. Heaven, in the popular sense, has become an ethereal nothingness. We have stripped everything away from, from our future hope. It has become a never-ending worship service where we all stand planted in the same place forever and ever and ever. If you thought last week's sermon was too long, then that's just a taste of what our popular view of heaven is. A never-ending worship service where there are no bodies where there is no actual manifestation of God. We've even stripped God of all substance. He is this nothingness that floats over potentially a throne, but maybe we've even stripped heaven of an actual throne. Uh, in fact, we've stripped heaven of everything. So that, I don't know about you, but for a lot of people, heaven is just sort of this light purple. What is that? Or a peach or a gray. And there's nothing of substance, nothing to look forward to, nothing to hold on to, nothing to grasp, nothing to hold. But that view of heaven is not the gospel. So there's no wonder that we are so attached to this world if the alternative is to go from what we have here and to embrace nothingness. The gospel, therefore, must go beyond this view of heaven. The gospel must have a biblical view of the world that we will inhabit forever and ever. Uh, our gospel must include what the Bible has said is the promise of the glorification of the very nature that God has created. You see, God cursed the universe because of human sin. Uh, we live in a sin-death environment. We live in a fallen world. And it's beautiful, right? If you go uh, out into nature, you could say, what a beautiful day. Well, that beautiful day is happening uh, within a curse. God has cursed the creation. So the most beautiful thing that you can see in the universe is what it looks like for God to curse His good creation. So God has cursed the universe because of our sin. And what the Bible says is that the end of this curse, where this curse is ultimately going, in 2 Peter 3, we're told that God will bring a climax to his curse against nature by destroying the universe in fire. And so we think, well, okay, if the, if the, if the universe is going to be destroyed, then we get to escape to this light, hazy, purple place. Uh, then we don't have to worry about the, the, the nature. We don't have to worry about the environment. We don't have to worry about the world. Nothing could be further from the truth because after God destroys the universe, after he brings about this apocalypse of fire to destroy the universe that we have ruined by our sin, he has promised to resurrect it in glory. The universe is not going to be destroyed and then forgotten. 
In fact, God is not going to allow the human race by our sinfulness to rob him of any of his good creation. The promise is that he is going to raise it all in glory. And when he raises the universe in glory, there will be no curse. This resurrected, curseless, glorified, super-physical universe is called in the Bible the new heavens and the new earth. New heavens meaning outer space. It means to the far reaches of our universe. It doesn't mean heaven where God dwells. And new earth is the planet that we live in. So new heavens and new earth is resurrected universe in glory. It's when nature becomes all that God intended it to be. In other places, this new heavens and new earth is called the kingdom of heaven. Now the kingdom of heaven has a nuanced meaning. The kingdom of heaven uh, has come in phases. The kingdom of heaven is here now in and by and through the church. But the, the fullness of the kingdom of heaven is redeemed, resurrected, glorified human beings living in a uh, resurrected, glorified universe, and then all will be as God intended it to be. And so that's the gospel. We want to we th- think in terms of a physical, super physical, glorified place where we are going to live forever and ever. There's uh, one verse that brings us together beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15. Op- open your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This whole chapter is about resurrection of the body, but Paul cannot talk about the resurrection of the human body without also talking at least a little bit about the resurrection of the universe that these resurrected bodies will live in. And we see that if you go to 1 Corinthians 15 down to verse 50. I'm going to read verses 50 through 53. Up until this point, that's 49 verses where where Paul has said, I want you to know about the resurrection. If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, then you too will be raised from the dead. It's impossible for Jesus to be raised from the dead, bodily, physically, and for us who believe in him not to be physically raised from the dead. We are united with Christ. See, Jesus is the model. So so what will our resurrection be like? Paul has gone through it. He says, well, there's continuity. You will be you. It'll be the same body that you're in now. But there will be some value added. There will be glory added, substance added, physicality added. And, And you will be more substantial, more glorious, more heavy than you are now. So Jesus is our model for our personal resurrections. Consequently... Jesus is also the model for the universe. The universe, this new heavens and new earth, this kingdom of heaven that we're going to live in, it is this universe that will be resurrected in glory. There will be continuity. We will be on this earth after it's destroyed, raised back in glory. And this earth will be within our solar system, which will be in the Milky Way, which will be in the universe as we know it. God has created this universe. He is not going to throw it away. He's going to raise it. There will be continuity with the universe we're living in now and the universe that we will be living in in glory. With all that in mind, take a look at verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I want to tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye in the last trumpet, at the last trumpet. For the last trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now dominantly, this is about the body, right? Flesh and blood. The bodies we have now are too weak to live in the kingdom of God. And therefore, they need to be raised up. We, our, our flesh and blood bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Why not? Because our current bodies uh, are too weak. Our, our current bodies are perishable and mortal. Our, our current bodies cannot live in the resurrected, curseless, glorified, superphysical universe. And that's what he says in verse 50. Take a look. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. When Paul talks about the kingdom of God there, he's thinking new heavens and new earth. He's thinking of a super physical glorified universe. You see, what we normally do with this verse is the exact opposite, right? We say flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now we have in our mind that the kingdom of God or heaven is this ethereal nothingness. And so what we take verse 50 to mean is then we need to get rid of physicality. We need to get rid of these bodies in order to inherit the kingdom of God. That's the exact opposite thing that Paul is trying to assert here. Did you, did you notice it? He gives, us, he gives us a reason. Because the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. So why cannot flesh and blood inherit the kingdom of God? That is, heaven, which is super physical glorified universe. It's because our bodies are perishable and mortal, but the kingdom of heaven is imperishable and immortal. It would be safer for our bodies to walk on the sun than for these bodies to step into the glorified universe, the new heavens and the new earth. Because there's just too much glory. There's too much substance in the world that we are going to live in forever. But, and this is what you have to underline in your mind so clearly, the solution is not to get rid of our bodies. The solution that the Gospel gives us is to resurrect these bodies. To give us resurrected, curseless, glorified, super-physical wonder bodies. Substance added, glory added, so that we can step into the resurrected, curseless, glorified, super-physical wonder world that is the kingdom of heaven. We're not going to an ethereal nothingness. We're going to a place that is more real than the world that we live in now. Therefore, we need bodies that are more real than the bodies that we have now. Our bodies must be made imperishable and immortal if we are going to live in an imperishable and immortal place. There is therefore a necessary link between the nature of our resurrected bodies and the nature of the resurrected universe. The nature of our bodies must match the nature of the new heavens and the new earth or the, the kingdom of heaven. 
Our bodies must be made to fit. Just as a, a, a fish cannot live out of water, so we cannot live in these bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. But again, I've made this point before. Let me make it in, in a different way. The move is not from the more to the lesser, but from the lesser to the more. We are not moving from the current reality that we're in now, these bodies in this universe, which is something, to something that is less. The move is from the lesser. We are existing in the lesser reality now. These bodies are the lesser bodies, and the universe we inhabit is the lesser universe. So until we truly believe that the kingdom of heaven is greater than this world, then we will never rather be there than here. We will always choose the greater over the lesser. And I think that comes down to why we struggle to want the return of Christ, why we struggle to say, you know what, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, that my, my actual longing is not to hold on to this life in this cursed universe where I'm surrounded by sin and death and difficulty. Why do we cling so much to this? Why are we so content to make mud plies in the slums? Because we cannot grasp, we have not even begun to consider all that the gospel is promising to give us. A holiday at the sea, a super physical glorified wonder world to live in. A boring, ambiguous, ethereal netherworld of nothing will never win our affections. On the other hand, an imperishable, immortal, resurrected, curseless, glorified, super-physical universe will. You think on that for a while, and you will begin to want it. You will crave it. You'll say, get me out of here. Get me out of this place and time. I, to live is Christ. I'll serve God as long as I'm here, but to die is gain. And then the resurrection, oh, glory. And all of a sudden, the things of this world will begin to grow strangely dim. And we'll begin to pursue different things. And we'll want more out of our lives than to accumulate stuff in this lesser place. Do we know anything else about the kingdom of heaven? Yes, we do. That's how the Bible ends. The Bible ends in Revelation 21 and 22, two chapters where God holds out to us a picture of, of what he's promised to give us. When, when we read in the gospel that, that we have a, an inheritance waiting for us, that, that Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he died for our sins so that he could secure for us an imperishable inheritance. Part of that inheritance is the universe that we will live in. And then at the end of the Bible, God says, I just want to give you a taste. I want to crack the door a, a little bit for you so you can see where you're going so you can want to be there instead of here. And then you can spend your life wisely with the right perspective. And so I want to give you six highlights. I, I can't read all of these chapters for you, but I, I encourage you to. Every, what, what, how would your life change if every morning you got up and you read Revelation 21 and 22 and you said, this world is not my home. This is not where I want to be. I'll be here so long as God puts me here, but I'm going to be useful for him so long as I'm here to live as Christ, but to die as gain. I want my inheritance. Come back, Lord Jesus. There is nothing that would prevent me from longing for the end of days right now. 
So let me give you six highlights about this kingdom of heaven that awaits us. Number one, and and just so you know, every one of these, I'm not going to do justice to them. Human language cannot capture the glory of what I'm trying to communicate to you. In fact, for that reason, I'm going to stop and pray because I want I want the Holy Spirit to minister directly to you using me, but I am just so insufficient to present to you what it is that God is promising us. So let me pray that that God would just give us a hint, a glimpse of this. Oh God, I, I am so aware of my inability to communicate this. And I thank you that you have given me a glimpse I can't even really get my head around it, but you've given me a glimpse of of what is yet to come. What is ours in Christ? New bodies for a new world. As we go into your scripture here in Revelation 21 and 22, I pray that for, for everyone who is listening, that your spirit would expand their mind and their heart to just see with a, a little more clarity what you've given to us. And then give us a desire for it. Wet our appetites for it. And and I pray that would change our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Number one. The kingdom of heaven is good enough and big enough and robust enough to contain God. What is good enough for God? If you're going to give God a place to live forever and ever. Now I know, we have that hazy, purpley place. That's where we tuck God away. He's up there in that that place that we can't even conceive of. But what what the Bible tells us is that it is God's good pleasure to exist within nature that He has created. He's going to no longer be outside of the universe that He has made. He's coming all the way in. And so whatever it is that he's going to do to this universe, it has to be qualitatively substantial enough for all of God to fit within. (laughs) What is that place? You know, we can't actually, uh, we will never fathom this because we have no idea how big God is and the place where God is going to dwell has to be big enough for him. We see this in Revelation 21 verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I know in Genesis 3, God would come down and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That's nothing compared to this. This is not just sort of God manifesting an aspect of himself in the world. It's not just the glory cloud coming down to fill the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, This is all of God. This is holy, holy, holy God living in the world and the universe that he has created. He's going to dwell with us. And his dwelling place will be with us. Dwelling place connotes fullness habitation. This is where he dwells. He doesn't dwell in heaven and come and visit us in the kingdom of heaven. He dwells with us on this earth in this universe. Uh, 
And we see it again in chapter 22 in verse 3, half of the way through. We're told that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. That's us. The throne of God will be in it. In where? In the new heavens and the new earth. The glorified universe. And we'll worship him where? Not up in heaven, but on earth. In verse 4, and they, that is us, will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. But that whole idea of seeing God's face, there's a lot of debate about what that means. And I think we, we rob ourselves of the imagery by saying there's no face to see. That just cheapens the whole thing, doesn't it? You will see his face, but small print, there's no face to see. No, what, what this means is God is going to be maximally vulnerable with us and show us himself unclothed unveiled where on earth so so the universe that god is going to raise up must be big enough and good enough and robust enough to contain god because we're going to see him there we're going to worship him there he's going to dwell here with us number two the kingdom of heaven this glorified universe is filled with the glory of god it makes sense, right? If, if God is dwelling in this universe, then the universe has to be filled with the glory of God. The unhindered, the unveiled, the, the transfigured glory of God, which in Scripture is described as the unapproachable light. Now just try and get your head around that image. The, the unapproachable light of God, that is the light that if you even get close to it, you're incinerated. It's safer to walk on the sun than to walk into the presence of God. God is bringing with Him the unapproachable light and it's going to fill the far reaches of the universe. And we are going to approach God in this unapproachable light. How? He's going to give us bodies that are fit, robust, substantial, so that we are not incinerated when we look on his face. So in 1 Timothy 6, just listen as I read this. We hear about God. God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. And because of that, no one has ever seen him, nor can they. No one has seen God because they can't see Him because God lives in a place that is so substantial and filled with His glory which is described as unapproachable light and it would destroy us. But we are going to be made fit for that and God's bringing that light here. That's awesome. So that to the far reaches of the universe it's lit up like a light bulb. In 22 verse 5 we read this. Revelation 22 verse 5. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The they is us. We don't need the sun and the moon and the stars anymore for light. We don't need light bulbs. Why? Because the unapproachable light fills every nook and cranny of the glorified universe. Will there be a sun, moon, and stars? Absolutely. How do I know that? Well, the, grammar, the actual wording, they will not need the sun or the moon or the stars for light. 
but they'll still be there. Why? Because Jesus is the model of resurrection. There's continuity. It's the same universe. The sun will be there, but just like you cannot see the stars when the sun's light shines, so we will not be able to see the sun when it is shining because it will be uh, hidden from us by the unapproachable light and glory of God. Make the sun 10 billion times brighter than it is now. We won't be able to see it for the brightness of God's glory. In Revelation 21, verse 23, we read this. The city has no need, there it is again, no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Who lights up the universe? Jesus Christ. From Jesus is the light bulb of the universe. And from him comes enough light to fill the places we haven't discovered yet. That's awesome. That is, that, is, that is an amazing place to be. Number three. The kingdom of heaven is a place where we will be in face-to-face contact with God. I've already alluded to this, but let's take another quick look at it. In verse, chapter 21, verse 21. Or, no, just a sec. 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. On earth right now, we have a temple. Why? Because God doesn't live in this universe. God manifests his glory, or he did, in the temple or the tabernacle. And we would go to the temple, and at the temple or the tabernacle, you had the holy place and the holy, holy place. And in the holy, holy place, you'd see the glory of God, but that's just his footstool because God dwells, according to Isaiah 6, in the holy, holy, holy place. So what John is writing for us here is we don't need a temple to visit with God. We don't need to go into these decontamination chambers where God sort of talks to us via Zoom through the temple. That's basically what it is, one divine Zoom meeting. Where God is in heaven, we're on earth, and we meet at the temple. No. You want to talk to God, you knock on his door, and you, go, you approach the throne of grace boldly, and you say, Father, I just want to sit here and gaze upon you for a while. And he says, fine, come on up here onto my throne and onto my lap. All that I have is yours. Face-to-face contact like children with a father. And then in 22, verse 3, we've already read this, but it's so glorious. The throne of God and the Lamb is in this place, and we'll worship in there, and we will see his face. You know, there used to be a time where, where the vision of God's face was the highest good for the Christian. That's what we long for more than anything. What happened to that? What happened to that desire? Anyone wake up ever and say, all I, all I need today for today to be the best day ever is to see the face of God? To say, I... I would rather die and see the face of God than all of the riches, all of the power, all of the promotions, all of the love, all of the whatever it is, fill in the blank. I just want to see his face. Do you know that no angel has ever looked on the face of God, ever? Even the four living creatures that have the closest proximity to God, with two of their six wings, they cover their face because God has not permitted them to look on him. We are the only creatures that God has made 
where we are invited to look on the face of God, to see God for who He is, and to know Him face to face. And no one has yet been able to do that. God said to Moses, no one can look on my face and live. Why? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But when we are raised in glory, we are going to be given bodies that will have the capacity to look at the face of God while standing in the unapproachable light without being destroyed. Number four, the kingdom of God is aesthetically breathtaking, being made of only the finest materials. This is where even the language of the Bible breaks down. Uh, in, in Revelation 21, verses 18 to 21, the whole point is, and it's symbolic language, to, to try to capture, we cannot capture what this place is made of or what it looks like. So let me just read Revelation 21, starting in verse 18. Right before this, we've been told that the capital city of the kingdom of heaven, which is the new Jerusalem, is a perfect cube. You know what was a perfect cube? The holy of holies. And so you have this holy, holy, holy place coming down. That's where you get the cube. Three dimensions. Talks about the three times holy place coming down. That's the new Jerusalem. But then out of the new Jerusalem will stream and we'll be able to fill and go anywhere in the universe. Anyway, all that to say, this city, this capital city of the new heavens and the new earth, a perfect cube where God dwells, verse 18, the walls of this city were built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. There's no such thing as pure gold that's like clear glass. It's image on top of image to say, I have no idea what this is, but it's the most valuable, most beautiful thing you've ever seen. It's the most precious substance. It's the kind of stuff that only God can make. And he's held it back until, until the end of days. We don't have this in our universe right now, I would go so far as to say. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Superlative language. You think about the most beautiful, precious rocks. Every kind. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. I'm not a geologist. It doesn't mean much to me. But you know what does mean something to me? Those are gorgeous stones. And I don't think that it's just, well, it's made of those things. It's, you can, can you imagine a place that is made only of that? And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And we're told that it was lit up like a light bulb as the glory of God. You know what's beautiful is when light goes through a, a precious jewel. And you just imagine how beautiful that is. This is a place that we, we have never seen a place this beautiful. You, you take the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, and it's cursed. This, this is glory. Number five, the kingdom of heaven is where we eat Life for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What's on the menu? Life with a capital L. 
What do you mean, life with a capital L? That's what I mean. You are literally eating life. Well, what's in life? Life is in life. Eternal life. You, you, just, you just take a scoop of water from the river of life and you drink it and you're filled with more vitality than you could have ever imagined in this life. Your body's breaking down. You get weary and tired. Just, just have one drop of the river of life. Or, or the tree of life that has been taken from us. It's there. You just go and pick its fruit whenever you want. You eat it and you're eating life with a capital L. In Revelation 21, verse 6, he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In other words, it's free. It's available. Whenever you want it, drink deeply. What's in that water? It's life. Then you go over to chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. The angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. What's, what's the spring, the fountainhead, the source of the river of the water of life? It's God. This is water that is flowing from the essence of God Himself. You, you are literally drinking God. And this river flows through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. This tree that is being nourished by the water that comes from the essence of God Himself, this fruit is filled and pulsing with the life of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator and sustainer of all things. You, you take a juicy fruit. Oh, that's a bad pun. You take a fruit that's juicy and you eat it, and you've never tasted anything so good. Like, superheroes are not as strong as we will be. Number six, and this is connected, the kingdom of heaven is a place where there's no curse, which means there's no sin, there's no war, there's no injustice, there's no disease, there's no sickness, there's no strained relationships, there's no natural disasters. It's just glory. In Revelation 21, verse 4, we're told, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then in chapter 22, verse 3, we see it very clearly. No longer will there be anything accursed. We live in a sin-death world. Curse is heavy upon us. Not on us directly if we're in Christ. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. But the world we live in we feel the curse every day in our bodies, in our relationships, in the nature around us. And yet, that's what we're holding on to. I have not done justice to what this is going to be like. So, after hearing about all of this, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum? 
Who wants to go for that holiday at the sea? Are we far too easily pleased? I strongly believe that we are too easily satisfied and our gospel is too small. The gospel must have room in it for a resurrected universe that is super physical. We need to preach the resurrection of this universe to ourselves regularly. We need to talk about and dream about and long for and live for entry into the kingdom of heaven. This, is, this ought to be the goal of our lives. But it's not. We're like kids making mud pies in the slum so much of the time. We fight about stupid stuff. We prioritize the wrong things. Uh, we make much of what is actually very little. And, and, and it's, the fact is, we are not asking enough from God. And we're not prosperity gospel people here. Why? Because they offer too little too soon. The only thing that prosperity teaching does is miss the mark by not promising enough. And promising it too early. When are we going to get this glorified universe? When Jesus returns, raises us from the dead, then the judgment, then the resurrection of the universe. We need to fight the enticing enchantment of the Christian Canadian dream because the Christian Canadian dream is focused entirely on this world. What is, what is the Canadian dream? The Canadian dream, and this is the premise of this morning, is the mud pie. What is a Canadian dream? Get a good education so that you can get a good job. Get married. Have a double income. Buy a house. Then upgrade to a bigger house. If you've done very well, get a third, even bigger house. Have children. Go on fun vacations. Enlist them in seasonal extracurricular activities so that you're exhausted at the end of every day. Cram every last moment of time with stuff to do. Get into a good Netflix series. Renovate the kitchen. Save for retirement. Then eventually retire. Have grandchildren. Go south in the winter. Hope for no terminal illnesses until old age catches up. Die of old age in your bed while you're sleeping when you're in your 90s. If we could just have that, that's a good life. Oh, she lived a good life, didn't she? She lived a good life. We're, we're celebrating today because she lived a good life. What do we mean? She had 90% of these things. She lived a long, full life of what? Mud pies. Now, what I'm not saying is that any of these things are sinful. What I'm saying is that's not enough for us. shouldn't be. If, if that's enough, then we've never even tasted the Gospel. So I'm not condemning us for having any one of these things or all of these things. What I'm saying is, if that's the goal, we've missed it. We've missed out. 
Now add to this, what is the Christian part of the Canadian dream? Well, it's the Canadian dream plus don't smoke, don't get drunk, don't swear, and go to church. Watch VeggieTales and PG-13 movies. You have the Canadian dream plus those things? You've, You've made it. You are a successful Christian. Now in contrast to this mud pie, the Bible calls us to be enticed by the kingdom of heaven. The things that I told you about. And so I want to just go for a moment to Luke. Let, just listen to this. Jesus. This is Jesus. He's dealing with the, with the um, uh, Palestinian dream, if you want to call it that, or the, the Galilean dream. They just wanted nice clothes, they wanted enough food to eat, and they wanted a house. If they could just have that, then they've lived the good life. We want way more than that. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. In other words, that's, that's the good life for them. Clothes, food, a place to live. We wouldn't be satisfied with that, but Jesus is meeting people where they're at. He said, don't be satisfied with that mud pie. Instead, now he gives them the alternative. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. See, it's not sinful to have those things. It's not sinful to have aspects of the Canadian dream. But don't pursue it as the greatest good for your life. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, the holiday at the sea. So sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, when the Canadian Christian or the Christian Canadian dream becomes our goal in life. We become this worldly and we miss out on the otherworldly glory of the gospel, which includes the promise that we will live in a resurrected universe. You cannot, I want you to hear this, in Matthew it was even clearer, you cannot serve God and money. And the context is you cannot pursue the Galilean dream and love God. So, just stealing from Jesus, you cannot pursue the Canadian Christian dream as the end goal of your life, that's the important part, as the end goal of your life, and have the kingdom of heaven at the same time. It's one or the other. Which one do you want? It's a high bar, I know it, but I didn't set that bar. Jesus set the bar. You cannot have both. Therefore, make your choice. It's sort of like the price is right. Do you want showcase number one or showcase number two? And I urge you, pass on showcase number one. 
You can have the best life in this world, and if you don't go for showcase number two, which is everything that we've talked about, then, then it's, you've invested poorly. You can only pursue one or the other as the ultimate purpose of your life. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Now, be honest with yourself for a moment. Where is your heart? Is your heart in the kingdom of heaven? Or is your heart in the kingdom of Canada? Honestly. And if your heart is in the kingdom of Canada, I urge you to humble yourself before God and plead for him to give you a greater desire, to want more of your life. I'm not asking you to give up anything, really. But I'm encouraging you to trade the lesser for the greater. I want to encourage you to invest all of your treasure. If where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, then invest all of your treasure, all of your hopes and dreams, all of your money and possessions, all of your time and earning potential, all of your gifts and talents, not in securing a better place for yourself in this life, but in the kingdom of heaven. Now, how do you do that? Well, it, it it's simply comes down to reimagining what your life could be. What could your life be? Not what is your life, but what could it be? From where you're at now, for whatever time you have left, what could you do with the days remaining? Start with a blank sheet. Forget about everything that you have and everything that you're doing. Start totally from scratch, blank sheet, and pray to God fast before him, maybe before you do this, and say, God, show me what my life could be. I want to invest my treasure in the kingdom of heaven because I know I can't have both. And then fill that sheet with biblical goals, hopes and dreams. What is your hope? What is your dream for your life? Is it, honestly, is it just retirement and nice vacations? Because if that's what you want, you can achieve it. Is that all you hope for? Is that all you're dreaming about? How could you invest your life for Christ? What hope and dream could you have for Christ's sake? Because that's when you begin to invest in eternal things. Money and possessions. Do you need all that you have? Jesus said, sell your possessions. Like I, if I just told up, stood up here and told you to sell your possessions, that's, that's not fair for me to do. But let me just quote Jesus. When he's, here's the Galilean dream, God will provide that for you if you just pursue the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, sell what you have. Or use what you have in a different way. Time and earning potential. To what end are you using your time and your energy? Like I think of jobs. Yes, we need jobs. But why do we, get, why do, why do we have jobs? 
turn the purpose of your employment into something kingdom-focused. Your energy, what do you do when you're not at your job? Is it, is it possible to, to live a life that finds joy and fulfillment and rest in, in working for the kingdom? And I know many, many, many people are doing that already here. But, but blank slate it and say, what am I doing with my time? Am I making the best use of my time? Gifts and talents, what are you passionate about? What is it that you want to do? I don't, I don't want to give you like this, this assignment of drudgery. What do you want to do for God? What are you gifted in? What are your talents? Are you using them for Christ or are you using them for vocational advancement? Are you using them for earthly enrichment? Or are you investing them in Christ's kingdom? Now we need rich people in the church to finance gospel work. Do you see that link though? We need rich people in the church not for bigger yachts, but so that the church can finance gospel work. So maybe that's you. The details on this blank sheet need to be discovered and decided by each one of us for ourselves. I, no one else can fill this sheet out for you. It's an exercise that you need to do with your family or your spouse or, or your, someone who's close to you that can help you. Um, but you do this with God's help. There is no cookie-cutter Christian life. Nevertheless, I am urging every one of us to invest our lives maximally for the cause of Christ. Why? Because our inheritance is awesome. And we only share in that inheritance if we choose it over the Canadian dream, if we choose to go and have a holiday at the sea instead of making mud pies. The problem is, just like the child making mud pies, we have no concept of the holiday at the sea. So that's what my goal has been, to show you the possibilities. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I don't care how great your life is if it's not rooted in the kingdom. It's too small. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. New bodies fit for a new world where God dwells intimately with us. That's a good gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I, I don't know if I was able to express what I long to express, and so I, I leave it with the Holy Spirit. Oh Spirit, minister to each one of us. Give us a, a glimpse, a vision, a desire for the kingdom of God. Help us to release our grip on this world so that you can fill our hands 
with the infinite glory of the inheritance that you've promised us through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.